We begin this episode with a little-known linoleum block print by Leopold Mendez, made sometime in 1950. This is author Susan Vogel. This is of a man with a mustache in front of a chessboard. Most people don't know who this guy is. His name was Henry Lane Wilson. He was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico from about 1910 to 1913. He's wearing a suit and a tie, and behind him, kind of um, ominous-looking people with dollar signs in their eyes or on their glasses. In front of Ambassador Wilson is a chessboard. And with his right hand, he's got a chess piece. This piece represents General Victoriano Huerta. In his left hand, he's pushed aside two other chess pieces. Those chess pieces being swept aside by the ambassador represent Mexican President Francisco Madero and some anonymous Mexican revolutionary. This work is about the assassination of President Madero, along with the vice president, Jose Pino Suarez, and Madero's brother. The American ambassador helped to plan this coup d'etat. We have the La Decena Tragica, which is the 10 tragic days. And this is February 9th through 19th, 1913. Most people have probably never seen this print before. And I'll bet most people in the United States have never heard of this event. I certainly hadn't. But it was like throwing a match into a pool of gasoline. It united revolutionaries across Mexico and inflamed what was already a violent, confusing, and expansive civil war. This was the Mexican Revolution. It lasted for nearly 10 years, and it raged just south of the United States border. And sometimes it crossed over our border. I think the Mexican Revolution is fascinating, confusing, but um, and, and tragic because a million people died. But it, re- it, it the U.S. really was involved, and not so much the government. Yes, we'll talk about, but people. U.S. people were very involved in the Mexican Revolution. This plot to kill the leader of Mexico was among several occasions when the United States interfered in the politics of Mexico in the early 20th century. What turned into the Mexican Revolution started off, as many conflicts do, with a plan to turn a dictatorship into a constitutional republic, to overthrow a dictator. But the violence spun out of control. Millions of people, including civilian men, women, and children, would lose their lives. To this day, many would agree that the Mexican Revolution has never fully been resolved. The lasting impacts of this conflict still impact Mexican people, their government, and their society. In many ways, what happened in the Mexican Revolution still impacts Americans as well. So what does this mean for those of us living in the U.S., specifically in Utah, and why does it matter? Well, I'm Ross Chambliss, and this is Nuevas Voces, a podcast by Artists de Mexico in Utah, a nonprofit based in Salt Lake City. And here we talk about the Mexican Revolution through the lens of art. This is part 11. And so to understand how all this started, let's take a step back to the moment before it all began. I put a picture of him at the when he was very young. That's Fanny Blauer, who was raised in Mexico. She's talking about Porfirio Diaz. He served seven terms as president of Mexico, a total of three and a half decades, from 1876 to 1880 and from 1884 to 1911. It is true that Mexico, during his term, uh, had a lot of uh, prosperity. 
uh, it was Porfirio Diaz who implemented a lot of the progress in Mexico, the railroad for investors. And it was an opportunity for everyone to come to Mexico and, you know, become rich. <laughs> Susan Vogel. Yeah, it was really when you see what he was doing the same thing in Mexico that, that people were doing in Europe in terms of building boulevards and um, public works, engineering, opera houses, uh, the railroads, every Every modern country was building railroads. Prior to this period, Mexico wasn't widely recognized as a developed, modernized nation. And now here it was on the same level as a lot of European countries are perceived that way, thanks to him. So there was a lot of progress, um, and his motto was order and progress. But there are other thoughts on what this was like for Mexicans. Luis Lopez gives a Chicano perspective. Yes, he's credited for pushing Mexico, you know, getting caught up, if you will. Um, but I always ask myself, at what cost, right? I mean, although um, when it comes to, like, industrialization, they were, they were more on the forefront. Uh, of course, there's always communities and people that, that suffered because of that. And so that is something that I think is important to recognize. And coming from the Chicano perspective, you know, I kind of look out for my peeps that way, too. And, and man... Yeah, it was, it was great for the country, maybe, at the time, but for a lot of those communities, it was, it was horrible. Here is Syriac Alvarez. Yeah, and I think a lot of ways, um, Porfirio really represents that disconnect between communities, indigenous communities, the poor communities, the, commun the marginalized communities really um, did not see that same growth, did not see that same stability that um, the um, that. Um, Porfirio really was pushing for, and I think that also that disconnect really helped push um, towards change. As the social and economic disparity worsened, uprisings began to occur. One lithograph created by artist Pablo O'Higgins, who was an American expat, born in Salt Lake City, by the way, illustrates one such uprising. And it's called Huelga de Cananea, so strike in Cananea. Cananea was a town in the state of Sonora, near the U.S.-Mexico border. He shows a worker uh, it, participating in a strike and with a sign that says Unidad Obrera Igualidad, so worker unity, equality. And they're at the doors of a place called Green Consolidated Mining Company, and through the door is bayonets coming towards the strikers. In many ways, this event foreshadowed the Mexican Revolution. By 1910, foreigners owned half of Mexico's oil industry and 20% of Mexico's real estate. So what's happening in this is that the Mexican workers are protesting the fact that they're paid half than the U.S. workers for doing the same work. So these U.S. mining companies who controlled, they owned apparently like 50, I think 90% of, of the mining in Mexico um, were discriminating, treating the Mexican workers uh, much differently than the U.S. workers for the same work. And the, the, it began, the workers began to see this as, as unfair and began to organize against it. Okay, remember Francisco Madero? He would eventually become the new president. This is before he was to be that chess piece being knocked off the board by the American ambassador. He emerged as Porfirio Diaz's main political opponent for the 1910 election. One thing I like about, I think interesting about Madero, is that he studied at UC Berkeley. 
he, he came from a very wealthy family northern, from northern Mexico, but he was still an advocate for the social justice and, and democracy. And his voice was really taken by the Mexican people. But after Diaz had promised that he wouldn't run again for office, he changed his mind. And he had Madero and thousands of his supporters thrown in jail. And then, of course, he claimed himself the winner in what was actually a rigged election. But shortly thereafter, Madero escaped. Madero fled to San Antonio, Texas. Then Madero wrote his, his plan de San Luis Potosí. From Texas, Madero called out Diaz's illegitimate presidency and called for an armed revolution to begin on November 20th, 1910. Basically, things are going to get really complicated here. So let's just summarize by saying Madero returned to Mexico within a matter of months. The enormous backlash of resistance to President Diaz forced him to flee to France with his tail between his legs. Porfirio Diaz doesn't really want to be in the middle of this. He does say something. He says Madero just unleashed a tiger. So Madero became president. And as we know, his tenure would not last long. But there's a famous mural by Juan O'Gorman that celebrates this chaotic moment early in the revolution. Madero is shown prominently in the middle, riding a white horse. Madero arrives in Mexico City, and he's so well received by the people. Everybody loves Madero. An important detail of this mural is the slogan written on the red banner above the crowd. Sufragio efectivo, no reelección. It means the effective effective voting, no reelection. And that is, let me just give you an idea of how powerful that phrase is, is that in every official document from the government, that sentence is always printed at the end of the letter. Hmm. I I grew up, uh, my my grandfather was an attorney, and any official document that came from a federal organization or uh, of Mexico City, will have that phrase. So there is no right. The Constitution of 1917, after the, the, the end of the revolution, uh, established that no president could re-elect, uh, be re-elected after the period of six years. That was one of the main outcomes of the Mexican Revolution. Because Porfirio Diaz had gotten himself re-elected for 30 years. Yeah, yes, we just don't want dictators anymore. No. But well, we will talk about that later because then we had the problem of one political party holding power for 70 years. Mm. You know. Here's Syriac Alvarez. Well, for me, I think it's also really interesting just how close the painter um, put everybody next to each other. Like on the left-hand corner, you see um, two very wealthy men next to um, a little boy without a shirt and then um, another man who has a very ratty shirt. Just kind of to, to show that this um, this like no re-election was for everybody, not just like one group of people. Um, and then on the top right corner with doves, kind of like having this idea of like peace and unity and like heroic um, I guess idea of um, this like of of doing this so people of different classes coming together Mm -hmm. yeah or at least the idea of people from different classes coming together Mm. (laughs) yeah so to kind of uh, go along with that with this mural you start to see different people represented whereas with Porfirio Diaz you didn't you just saw the elite the European Um, so that thing that's one very powerful 
uh, aspect of this mural and other murals during that time period to unify the country under that national identity. It should also be pointed out that there is no flag of the Virgin of Guadalupe shown in this image. Remember, the Virgin of Guadalupe is not necessarily an iconic uh, religious aspect, but it was an, an, an icon of identity, which we don't see here. It's suddenly the flag, the Mexican flag, that we see everywhere in the paintings in the, uh, <coughs> of the uh, beginning of the 20th century. So it's really implementing this idea of nationalism. But there were different competing ideas about what kind of nation Mexico should be. One of the leading revolutionaries fighting in northern Mexico was a guy named Francisco Pancho Villa. You may have heard of him. He, his story is so fascinating because he was a bandit. And he knew every square inch of Chihuahua, which gave him a great advantage as a revolutionary. And Madero gave via a chance to become, to do something really important, to redeem his past and to become a hero. People, I think, they believe more what they see on the picture screen. This is from the 2003 American film and starring Pancho Villa as himself with actor Antonio Banderas. When your president, Wilson, when he sees my movie, he will know he must support Pancho Villa. He will see a Pancho Villa is a good guy, that he's not like Presidente Huerta, hijo de la chingada, fucker del burro. That donkey fucker. Yeah, got it. Bueno. Pancho Villa had Hollywood film crews film the revolution from El Paso. That's amazing. <laughs> and had the battle staged so that they would be in, in good light for the filmmakers. At the same time, in southern Mexico, there was another famous revolutionary, Emiliano Zapata. This is from a 1952 American film, Viva Zapata, with Marlon Brando playing the role of Emilio Zapata. So Pancho Villa was fighting for something, so it's justice, some a, a basic sense of fairness and justice for Mexicanos, whereas um, Emiliano Zapata was really very, very focused on what he was fighting for, tierra y libertad, land and liberty. They were fighting in the South for to regain the lands that their families had farmed for thousands of years. When, when Zapata, Emiliano Zapata, indicates the idea of uh, equality and, and freedom and that the land is for those who work the land, uh, Madero was not too sure exactly how to understand that aspect of what was happening in, you know, in central Mexico. Despite Francisco Madero's early popularity, he failed to grasp what so many impoverished and alienated Mexicans wanted to achieve. A year after Madero's plan of San Luis Potosí, Zapata decided that Madero had betrayed the revolutionary ideals that he promised, and he came up with his own plan, the plan of Ayala. At the same time, Pancho Villa had also grown disillusioned with Madero. And then there was the Ten Tragic Days in 1913, when General Victoriano Huerta and military leaders, with the help of U.S. Ambassador Lane Wilson, organized a coup d'etat and Madero was killed. 
The killing of Madero ignited the Civil War, and it just continued to get really terrible. So just to summarize, General Victoriano Huerta, who had betrayed Madero, took over. But he was met with fierce resistance from all sides, including the U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who sent Pancho Villa's fighters weapons and support across the border. American Marines even invaded Veracruz to take down Huerta, who himself finally fled the country. And this takes us to when Pancho Villa from the north and Emiliano Zapata from the south converged on Mexico City. And in a moment famously captured in a photograph, Villa and Zapata were presented with the presidential throne. It is told that during this picture, um, I, I read about it, uh, there is the La Silla Presidencial, right? The, the, the throne, it's the golden chair that was uh, actually... I learned this that by Juarez, surprisingly. Mm. Juarez was the first one who sat on this chair, and then Porfirio Diaz, it was his chair, you know, the golden red velvet uh, chair. And Pancho Villa, what we see here, he is making fun of, of basically taking the chair. <laughs> what is interesting to me uh, in this, in this, during this, the conversation, what happened in this event is. Uh, it's believed that Pancho Villa asked uh, Zapata to first to sit first, and Zapata said no. And this is where you can see the ideology so being so different from each other. I think they were both fighting for the same, but in a very different way. Uh, Zapata was very a very genuine, very loyal to his people and to his ideas, and the fact of sitting down in this chair was humiliating was would represent what to to sit on something that he has been fighting for for many years la silla presidencial que está rodeada de envidias color de sangre y de víboras junto al poder nacional this music is called a corrido, a Mexican ballad about the presidential throne, La Silla Presidencial, which Pancho Villa sat in with Emilio Zapata at his side. The singer is lamenting how anyone who sits in the chair is corrupted by power and forgets the people and their pain. He sings that the chair is red, just like the blood of all Mexican people. Why else is this moment or this photograph um, interesting or important? I think it's interesting in that all the people standing around in the background. It just, it's not, you know, we've looked at so many pictures of people in suits and people all decked out in European royalty. And this one just shows it's so many different kinds of people that look like they're from different backgrounds, different ages. We don't see women, and women were very much involved either as actual soldiers or the Adelitas who um, went with the sh soldiers. So the, sol the men, in the military men, were not just going off by themselves. Women went with them and did all, a lot of work. Some of them fought, and those were called the Adelitas. And then women um, wore pants and also carried guns and, and actually were soldiers. So this, unfortunately, doesn't show the women, but it shows several um, gringos. <laughs> And there's a lot of speculation as to who they were. 
people, a lot of, you know, this was very alive in the U.S., the Mexican Revolution. If you go down to the archives of the Salt Lake Tribune and look at, on microfiche, if you look at the newspapers for that time, the front page was the Mexican Revolution. And a lot of it was because of the Mormon colonies in northern Mexico. I mean, come on, they're right in the middle of it. Pancho Villa is in the, the Mexican colonies. They're trading arms. Some of the people are trading arms. So it's really alive and well in the U.S., and it attracted a lot of people from the U.S. La silla presidencial que representa al gobierno la deberán ocupar los elegidos del pueblo Let's be clear. Any war is horrible. It's awful for soldiers who experience it, and it's also harrowing for the civilians who get caught up in it. Anyone from northern Mexico has a great story about the revolution because their grandparents, remember, one of my friends said, whenever the revolutionaries came through our town, our family would hide their silver and their daughters. <laughs> Another friend said her sister disappeared, her grandmother's sister disappeared and her grandmother's brother when he was like 12 years old was taken by the troops and was traded from one revolutionary group to another came home knocked on the door two years later and the mom said who's there he said she said your son she said i don't have a son so she never expected the son to come back and he did but the daughter never came back here's luis lopez well i've just heard some of these stories um through you know, our elders, our, our grandparents. I know my wife's other family from Michoacan, and uh, her grandmother shared a story about hiding the women in the graves uh, when revolutionaries would come by and stuff like that. And so that was very interesting to me. Um, and I also found interesting the fact that they would respect the the panteones, right? Like that's the one place that they would not go and like search. Um, but yeah, that's where they would have to hide. The, the graveyards. Yeah, they the women. And, yep, they would not search the graveyards. Fanny Blauer has a more intensely personal story. She says during the revolution, her grandfather on her mother's side and his family, who lived on the southern side of Mexico City, owned a store and tried to support Zapata's fighters. As the revolutionary took place, they ran out of uh, goods. And one night, uh, as my grandfather described it, uh, the bandits came and asked my grandfather to give them food and things that they had in the common store. My grandfather said, we don't have any more. We have uh, food only for us and for my three kids and for my wife. So the bandits were really upset. They said, if you don't give us what you have, we're going to kill you. So they took him towards the wall. And when they were about to shut him, my great-grandmother, Guadalupe, grabbed her three children and put herself with the children against the wall. And my grandfather said uh, that she, he remembered how uh, his mother asked him, close your eyes. And he was six years old when this happened. And you can imagine how frightening it could have been. However, he r- remembered uh, very strong the, uh, the position of his mother's hand and holding him very tight. And as he said, as she she said, uh, close your eyes, the bandit said, move away. No, I am not moving away. If you are killing this man who's my husband, he is a main provider. We are nothing without him. If you kill him, you kill us all. 
Well, they ended not killing my great-grandfather, and my grandfather was always so touched by this act of courage and bravery uh, by his mother. Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata together conquered the Mexican capital, but neither of them wanted the presidency. This meant a power vacuum, and the chaotic fighting continued. So the aftermath of this is that um, Carranza, Venustiano Carranza, becomes president. He is responsible for the first constitution, the Constitution of 1917. Apparently there's some murals about him, too. Not as many. He's not, cons- he's not really lauded as one of the revolutionary heroes. The U.S. acknowledges him as the president of Mexico, which really sends Pancho Villa into a tailspin. And what does Pancho Villa do? Invades the U.S. Gringos! Come, surrender. To who? I am Pancho Villa. You surrender, I'll cut your ears off. This is from a ridiculous 1973 American film called Mexico Invades the U.S. He, we're, we don't consider that an official invasion of the U.S. in U.S. history, but he invades Columbus, New Mexico. About 16 people are killed. And it's, you know, it's, it's not funny. It's a serious thing. It was awful. Naturally, this pissed off a lot of Americans. And so the, the U.S. launches a raid to kill him. You can see old footage of American soldiers crossing the border and pursuing Pancho Villa. And it's 10,000 people were involved, airplanes, um, and we can't find him. Why? Because he's very wily and he knows every square inch of northern Mexico. This corrido mocks the futility of America's pursuit of Pancho Villa. You know, when Fanny and I have given classes, we... we kind of try to show it the Mexican point of view and the Mexican point of view is often on how Mexico has fought off foreign invaders and one of the, the points of, of pride is Pancho we could not get Pancho here we spent so much money General Pershing was was involved we spent so much money and, and manpower trying to find him we could not find him um, I, I want to share this story. It's a, I, it's, for me, it's very powerful because, uh, as I said, my my uh, my father's family were very supportive of the Mexican Revolution, supporting directly Zapata, and then my father later was uh, very involved in politics and in in his twenties, thirties, even forties. And uh, Pancho Villa was, I mean, he had collections of books, and I wish I had brought them. To, I have those books at my house, uh, <clears throat> pictures of Pancho Villa in my house. So when I married, when I got married, I, I am married with a you know, white American uh, from a very conservative family here in Salt Lake City and having these conversations, even with my husband. <clears throat> and the first time I remember asking him, who is Pancho Villa for you? And his response was, he's a, he was a traitor. He's a bandit. He was, he, was, uh, he was not a good man. And when he said that, 
It was a big shock because I grew up with this figure of this Mexican revolutionary who was the Robin Hood. The Mexican Robin Hood. Yes, he stole and he was banded, but he gave to the people that really deserved it. So it is true that the the figure of Pancho Villa in the U.S. might be very much as a traitor. <clears throat> when he, I mean, he was probably both. As a white American, when I've heard the image of Pancho Villa evoked, it's usually been an insult or a stereotype of Mexican people. Here's Luis with his Chicano perspective. U.S. propaganda was a major you know, influence on how he was viewed, and not just that, but Mexicans and revolutionaries. Um, Mexican men were portrayed as these tequila drinking, you know, gunslinging, marijuana smoking banditos when Pancho Villa didn't even drink. In fact, he was he was uh, against alcohol. And so um, the way that they were portrayed, right, and I think definitely once he decided, okay, well, I'm going to invade the U.S., uh, real quickly all that came into, into play and that changed how he was viewed in the U.S. Carranza would remain president for several more years until he was murdered in 1920. A guy named Alvaro Abregón took over and finally gave Mexico its most stable presidency since the revolution began. Reforms were made to Mexico's education system to teach the values of the revolution, along with labor laws to protect workers. And much of the fighting phase of the revolution was over, but it also meant that Villa and Zapata would also have to end too. Well, when the revolution ended, um, Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata were definitely tar. They had to be eliminated. And the stories of, um, of both of those are very interesting and very much a part of Mexican um, history. And the, the way Pancho or Emiliano Zapata was assassinated was really, really tragic. This corrido is about the death of Zapata. We won't get into it here, but the story of Zapata's ambush assassination is a story worth learning about. Still today, Zapata is a big deal. His legacy and his principles of standing up for poor, hardworking farmers lives on even today with revolutionary groups including the Zapatista uprising movements in the 1990s. His image is seen in murals along with Che Guevara and more recently with Cesar Chavez and the late Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez. As for Pancho Villa, he also was met with a violent end. He was gunned down with his companions while driving one day. Susan says in the greater scheme of things, his death along with Zapata's was necessary. The government needed to get rid of those revolutionaries in order to move forward and not, you know, they they weren't going to come into the fold of the government. And so who knows what they were going to do. For some, the revolution brought about some positive changes for farmers and indigenous peoples. Some of the most patriotic Mexicans were determined to stick it out, lest they betray the values of the revolution. But for others, the chaos of the revolution never really dissipated. The nearly 10-year-long civil war made life hard, and it stayed hard. Many Mexican families had lost trust in their government, trust that they would never regain. 
right now we're so far away from the revolution we can you know laugh at Pancho Villa and just kind of smile about different things but um, when you think of all the people who suffered the lives that were lost for what all this bloodshed a million people dead for what and so that's another that's a really important question You can see images of the art and photographs about the Mexican Revolution we discussed during this episode on the website and home for this podcast, artistmexut.org. What are your thoughts on the Mexican Revolution? What stories does your family have to tell about the revolutionary period? Has it had a lasting impact on your family? Let us know. Thanks to Luis Lopez for his Chicano perspective. Thanks to Fanny Blauer for her Mexicana perspective. Thanks to Susan Vogel for her enlightened perspective as a scholar of Mexican art. And as for me, Ross Chambliss, I am just learning about all of this so much for the first time, and it's reshaping how I think and feel about this country south of our border. The music you heard in this episode comes from Calexico, Antonio Pinto, and Al Cayola. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities. Thanks to KCPW for the studio space. This is Nuevas Voces.